Hey, welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, finishing up my Alaskan trip uh, here with Mark Taylor in Wiggy's, Alaska. And uh, we're back. I fly out today, so we just wanted to do our final little debrief and discussion on the week's plus worth of classes. Mark, how you doing, man? You feeling a little under the weather, huh? Not not to be confused with Carl Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Carl I'm a Taylor. little bit more handsome than Carl Taylor, but he's he's a great guy, great friend of ours. But um, I never heard of Carl Taylor. Who's it? You're you're the only whatever, Taylor you know, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there was some confusion there for a while, but uh, we got to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, good, good. Good block of classes, man. We had three classes. Uh, I think the guys learned a lot. Uh, before we jump into that, though, I want to answer, because this is going back a little bit, one of the Podbean questions that came up, and we use it a lot, and I just coming off the class, so I'll, I'll talk about density, altitude, and barometric pressures. Uh, I had a, and I don't have it in front of me, but there was a Podbean question about density, altitude, and barometric pressure. So if we look at the shape, area, mass, and weight of the bullet, we use our ballistic coefficient that tells us that. Then your muzzle velocity is the velocity in which you push the bullet. Our other factor is the air density. And what we do with air density is a combination of barometric pressure, temperature, and humidity. If we combine all three of those values, you get density altitude. And density altitude is not physical altitude, which I'll get into it in a minute, but density altitude is where the bullet thinks it's flying. So to explain that, my range in Colorado is at 4,500 feet above sea level, okay? Well, the density altitude right now and on any given nice day is going to be about seven to 8,000 feet, almost twice as high, right? So that's where the bullet thinks it's flying. And why it likes that is less parasitic drag. The higher you go up in altitude, the, the, the uh, air becomes less dense, harder to breathe in Denver for people, right? Less air molecules. And so the bullet flies through without that parasitic drag. And now for shooters, we roll altitude into our barometric pressure, making it station pressure or absolute so so the station pressure is when it's getting adjusted one inch for every thousand feet of altitude we go up this is why in your software if you check that it's station pressure it grays out the altitude if you use sea level barometric pressure then you have to include the altitude because the software needs to know what the air density is now, for shooting today, this is the only time we need to consider humidity is when we're figuring density altitude. Humidity, you can basically set to 50% and leave it alone. It's not a big factor. Just understand 100% humidity makes the air less dense and not more, but it's a very small. It With a 308, 175 grain, the difference between zero and 100% humidity at 1,000 yards is just about four-tenths of an inch. And it's not four-tenths times 10. It's just four-tenths of an inch. So nobody's going to hold four-tenths of an inch at 1,000 yards. Don't sweat it. Put it to 50% and you're done. So if you get a Kestrel, you set your Kestrel, you leave your Kestrel set at the factory default settings. Don't change your reference altitude or reference barometric pressure 
because then that'll mess up your density altitude a little bit. Now, the nice thing is with Kestrels and software, if you screw it up, the, now the, in the AB mode, it bypasses that and it uses the raw data. Here's the thing. Density altitude is a great one number to use to tell us where the bullet thinks it's flying and you can pair your dope with that. But if you're using software and you have access to your raw data, the raw station pressure and temperature, you want to input that. I think density altitude in the software was an afterthought, which it was. People wanted it, so they put it in after the fact. And there is some variations in density altitude based on temperatures and things like that. You can really get into the weeds with DA if you were going to look at it. Um, we're not going to do that, but um, I say if you're using it, the raw data is a little better. I record the density altitude because that's a good field expedient way. So if I'm out in the field and I'm using DA cards, I don't have to worry about the rest. I just have to know my density altitude. And you can get density altitude without uh, electronics, you know, no batteries, no nothing, if you know roughly the elevation you are above sea level. And final thought on that is just understand your pressure, your kestrels are, not, are pressure meters and they don't know where you are. So you're only rounding density altitude off to the nearest thousand feet. So if you see that little minor fluctuations that go up, even if they fluctuate 100, 200 feet, that's that's meaningless. Don't worry about it. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah. yeah. Um, remember the old uh, field density altitude calculators? Mm-hmm. Well, that was a paper solution for what we now use electronics right. for. But the paper solution was very easy, really, if you dug into the numbers a little bit. If it was 60 degrees, then your density altitude is your altitude. Right. And if you're shooting at – well, rarely are you shooting just right? – yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're shooting at 60 degrees, generally, if you're 2,000 feet, you have 2,000 DA. Yeah. So if it's 80, you're going to be greater than 2,000 DA. Just know that. You know, and you're only going to see a great change um, when you add 2,000 or subtract 2,000 from the DA you're shooting from. So we don't have that problem here in Alaska because we wake up, we wake up, it's minus 500. We start shooting at minus five. We might make it to 2,000 in a day. So, so there's just not that great big of a fluctuation where we shoot at our home range. Know your home range. If you guys have a home range, which is where you become proficient, then know that home range. Know your dad at that home range. Know the, the general density altitude at that home range under given conditions. And then you'll be a step above. Yeah, and, and it was negative here. But round it to every 1,000 feet. Don't worry about those minor fluctuations. Yeah, we were like negative 500 in the morning. And typical afternoons when we shot this week, we were plus 1,000 feet above sea level because it's cold. Your biggest factor, the number one thing you have to worry about with your air density is temperature. Temperature is what swings it. Uh, and I would tell you to check your temperature once an hour. You know what I mean? Because that's going to be your biggest swing throughout the day. Um, you may get your dope in the afternoon at 75 degrees. Well, you wake up the next morning and you're going to go do a cold bore shot and it's 45 degrees. You're going to have to add a click or two of dope depending on the distance. Because now it's colder. The air is more dense. Molecules are packed together. As it heats up, they get excited. They move apart. Less parasitic drag. Cool. But thanks for that question. That was a really good question. That was on the Podbean app, and I didn't want to ignore it, but I appreciate you asking it. Uh, now let's uh, we'll talk the class. And um, from a, we approached the class a little bit different this year, like we mentioned. We we did not 
we instead of splitting the line up and Mark take one side, I take another, putting two sets of pieces of steel out, and it's just me spotting you shooting, me spotting you shooting. We basically decided to tag team you, where you always had somebody right at your side when you shot. We felt that I, well, I felt, I think we all do, but this cleaned up so much more because it didn't let you get into bad habits or, or kind of creep back into a little bit crooked off the gun because you come getting up and getting down, slapping the trigger without being seen, you know, something like that. So we hammered them. The shooter is better during the final eval, period. Yes. When we spend, the more time we spend with the student on each individual shot or in each string, Frank's on them or I'm on them the better student we're going to have at the final eval. And I just want to talk about this foundation we mentioned because, you know, the fundamentals of marksmanship are the foundation for all great shooting. And there's a lot of really good, bad shooters out there who just adapted their bad habits and can become, you know, pretty accurate. It's just once you take them out of their comfort zone, they got to start over. Well, I want to talk about this foundation because we had a, a guy, Chris, and he small Chris. Had, small Chris. Okay, I'm gonna go small Chris, big Chris. Small Chris, about five six. Okay, and um, he was shooting a 270 hunting rifle, and 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 it was getting him a little bit. He had a, a Harris bipod that wasn't working well. It was one that's not notched. It kept collapsing on him quite a bit. It collapsed on me. I shot his rifle. That's what I call squirrely. Yeah, it was a squirrel. squirrely rifle. It was not a, a squirrel rifle. A squirrely rifle. It was a big time squirrely rifle. It was accurate, like because we shot it at the end. And I hit a eight inch plate at 600 yards, holding it over with the radical, the BDC radical. Center punched it, and, and it's a good rifle. It was um, Ruger American 270, the whole thing. So it was accurate, and but to learn on, you know, yes, we can teach you and work you up. We had Gary with the Browning Ultra, like. Yeah, but that's a custom Browning yeah. hunting rifle. It was a hammer. Dude, that guy one shot everything could, could to a gram. Could it be better? Yes. Could it be more ergonomic? Yes. But it was a it was a hammer. He Gary handled his rifle. I mean, he's a slayer. This guy did not have to shoot more than two rounds at any given target because it was center punch, center punch. Bigger guy, you know, so you, you have this. You'll have somebody who can handle it, and then somebody who doesn't do as well. Well, Big Chris was a past student, had taken our class, was friends with little Chris, and big Chris is a big guy. They both work for Napa. Yes, they both See, work for Napa. This was a Napa course. This was supposed to be a Napa course. Napa... Um, Auto parts. Napa Auto Parts. They had a lot of earthquake damage during our 7-0 that we had back in March 30, I think it was. And no, no, it was November 30. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they had a lot of damage, so they didn't have the money to throw around this year. So they backed out with a few exceptions. A couple guys came up from Washington, and Chris came with them. Um, so it was supposed to be a Napa class. We get corporate classes. So what happened was Big Chris says to Little Chris, Hey, man, I got my Ruger RPR. I got ammo. It's all set up. It's all ready to go. Why don't you shoot my rifle and have a better experience? You know. So now Chris had taken the class. Little Chris... He gets in straight, square, we do the whole thing, and, and this is like the um, day two, it's first thing day two, I, or no, it was yeah. late in day one, I think he might have switched. Yeah. Whatever. And we check his 100-yard zero, and he fires the first round, and he's just about touching the red dot in the shoot and see. Next round, next round, every round is in the X ring of the three-inch shooting see. That's because of the foundation we build. You always hear those stories where my zero and your zero isn't the same. But 
you know, I go back in time, my zero and Jacob Bynum's zero was the same. Jacob's six foot, I'm not. My zero and Mark Taylor's zero is the same. Mark's big and six foot, and I'm not. You know, yeah. Five nine, Frank. Five nine, whatever. Uh, thanks, man. But, but, but you know what I mean. But it, Frank, I look six feet. Yeah, everybody looks six foot to me. So it's it's this foundational. It's it's getting straight behind the rifle and managing recoil correctly. It's not influencing. Yes, yeah, sight Side picture. Line. Not influencing the trigger, and making sure you're coming straight and square and straight back. Well, recoil management tells the bullet where the barrel is when it releases the shot, and that's what we zero to. Okay, but if we line everybody up the same and we're making like I put on my book, I tell you guys all the time, Taylor clones. You know, it's Frank clones too, but if we make you in our image, well, then these things start to fall into place. And that's where we're coming from with the foundation in the fundamentals of marksmanship. So uh, we wanted to kind of bring that up and, and let you know what what are some of these other positive benefits. Because, I mean, we're reading online right now and the guys are just laughing about this stuff. You know, like the rear bag thing that uh, Kalen was talking about. Where a a Ellie shooter was told his rear bag was a crutch, you know, and and it's like people are you know make fun of us because we're the fundamental Frank or fundamental Phil and Mark and I doing fundamental classes, and and it's like you know PRS you can run over, it doesn't matter really what your bipod is and how it is you're gonna flop down on your gun you're gonna crank off two three shots you're gonna get up you're gonna move over and you're really letting the gun do a lot of the work. And again, in this class, I even did it with the APO this time. I did the tripod demo where I shot the target without me touching it and influencing it. I just lined up the rifle on the target. I stepped away from it, make sure that when the bolt was run and everything was good, it was still where I left it. And then all I did is tap the trigger. I didn't tap it. I still follow through. But I, all I do is press the trigger and it hits the target without me behind the rifle or even looking at the target. And everybody goes, ooh, and on. It's like fireworks. You know, there's videos of me doing it. And that's because our rifle and equipment is so good. The variable, the wildcat, is always us. That's why we spend so much time and we work with you to fix you the biggest variable in your precision rifle system, the nut behind the bolt, right? And in some cases, the loose nut behind the bolt. And so, I mean, that's kind of where we're going with this. But um, hang on a second. I think we got something coming. We there? Are we back? That was a good intermission. So that was, we had a guy come in. One Actually, a past student came in. And uh, so Mark had to do a little bit of work. So then we want to get into, let me see where we are. So with the class, let's talk the scopes. Because... Here's the thing, man. You're going to take a class. You're going to go out and you're going to learn to shoot. Guys, you got to learn your your scopes. Not only how to adjust them, what the reticle is and how that reticle works, as well as, you know, um, resetting your turrets. We have, we've had a lot this, this uh, block. A lot of guys came to class with their turrets just wherever. Even the target turrets, they're doing that. You, you know, you got to reset those turrets to zero, zero and know your optic. I think that was one of the biggest kind of consistent struggles with people is trying to get them to understand not only direction of going up. And it's like, you know, one guys are like, you know, counterclockwise this way, that. And it's like, dude, the number gets bigger. You're going up. You know, it's not like you have to look at 
that direction and all that, but they, they're they're not putting them back to zero. Pre and post shot checklist, right? Zero, zero, so you know where you're starting from. If you get off that rifle, you need to make sure you reset that turret to zero. So when you're over there telling your buddy how you just hit the 1,000-yard plate on your second shot, and then you come back and you're going to do something else, you're not a rev off. We Because we, a lot of older scopes, a lot of cheaper scopes, um, you know, they don't have zero stops, or the guys didn't set their zero stops. They're revs off because they'll come even revs off up. You know what I mean? Because what they're doing is they're getting off the gun. They're going, maybe they're having lunch. You know what I mean? And then when we come back from lunch and we say, okay, dial on your 800-yard dope. They're dialing their full 800-yard dope. From on, their 300. Right, from their three or six or from checking, you know. It's, it's make sure you understand the condition of your optic. And I think that's a big, big thing. Um and uh, there was a question about the on that, and I'll let Mark because <laughs> I'm gonna stay out of this one. But somebody asked about the primary arms scope, and we actually had a primary arms on the line, and that is a question in the Podbean app. What do we think of the primary arms stuff? I really think you know it's meant for like the AR-15 crowd. It's not one of the places I would visit at Shot Show, for instance. Yeah. So I'm like. Frank, what in the hell is this scope? Who is primary arm? And this is right in front of the student because he wants to know too because he don't know. Some guy talked him into it. Some guy said it's paired that's to the, the RPF. Per- that's the perfect scope for that rifle. And I said, well, I don't know because it had mushy turrets. It had it was doing nothing that we told it to do there for a while. Yeah, it, it, it like worked, didn't work. It worked. It was really tough to nail down where the problem was. It had a wacky reticle. It almost looked like one of those old um, I can't even think of the name. The Israeli, Russian-looking reticle with a lot of holdovers, but the the chevron and the thing, and, and the guy said, but this scope was supposed to be paired with the RPR. Oh, no. And, and to me, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you're a guy who gets this stuff, and maybe it's entry level, and you don't get much past 100 yards with it. Maybe you get the two or three, so you never really see... The, the failure. The, the full picture. Yeah. And, and we just were, uh, you know, we, we weren't necessarily as big of fans with it without re- realizing what it was and to them. But it was just funny because I said to Mark, we're driving back in the Wiggy Van to Sheep Creek. And I said, dude, a guy in the Podbean app just asked about that scope. And, and you were like, oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we don't want to get too down on it. We've already kind of did that whole. Um, Students are in a learning phase. Students don't have a lot of money. This is their first rifle if not precision rifle and they're coming into the course with substandard equipment it if, if we if we can work with it it will get utilized if we can't work with it we'll replace it. and and honestly mark built a couple packages for guys and he was doing the teak attack a1s because before the apo stuff came out it was basically the end of last year guys wanted rifles for this year and so he had him get the tikas the tikas were phenomenal um, you know, barrel muzzle velocity is a little down, but not bad. And, you know, we did it. We, we had some mag excellent. issues. A couple of them had mags. Like every third one would have a mag issue that I've mentioned not before. But then Mark put SHVs on the ones that just wanted the base package. And to us, you know, the SHV is, is a utilitarian scope. Yeah, but it's your $1,250. Yeah. That's kind of what we consider low budget. Now, as I had mentioned, if you want to go below that, I don't recommend much below, but the new SIG Tango 4 with the updated turrets 
they're like eight hundred dollars. And then you got your SWFAs, but you want to be the three to fifteen or the five to twenty in the SWFAs. Those are good, and I don't, I don't recommend the fixed powers. You know what I mean? I get it because they are good, and it's not anything about the scope. It's just about the use in my mind. Um, it, it, there's no negative on that. It's just uh, the three to fifteen is a really good, uh, you know, one, and the five to twenty. Well, there's no upside to a fixed right. ten. Right. There's no What's upside. What's the upside to, to a fixed ten? You know, right. you got a fixed ten. There's a little bit of downside. But there's never going to be an upside to a fixed 10. Now, we qualified with fixed 10s in the Unurals, but that's only because back then it was like... Yeah, minute uh, a man, uh, nobody's fine-tuning. Just past Vietnam technology, and we didn't know any better, so we just struggled through it. But uh, Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, we're we're trying to start putting out these, these information to say we recommend this, recommend that, because we do see so much... Um, you know, from guys that on the low budget side, thanks to the three bears up here and the Walmarts and, you know, the sportsman's warehouses is all they really have access to. And none of those places stock good scopes, you know. So when you go in there and the, and the uh, guy behind the counter recommends you this $350 scope to shoot a center fire long range rifle, it's not going to work, guys. And we're going to run into a problem. Which brings me to another gun store dilemma. Reloads. So, yeah, yeah we got to address this, man. Uh, I, uh, I we, had a, we had a 3378, which is an absolute 30 caliber cannon. The guy didn't have time to reload, so he went to uh, a reputable gun store and, and some reputable people to reload for him. But the problem, the, the problem was they didn't get to shoot the rifle. He didn't leave the rifle with him. Um, well, immediately, he had stuck bolts, and then and then he had a broken bolt. Yeah, you know? I told I, you know, and his thing to me is, you know, I'm like, is there factory even in factory ammo for this for you to compare it to? He said there was, but it was too expensive to use. Hopefully, it's not SMB. I don't know. Yeah, we got that, an SMB story too. That SMB was yeah. Um, but anyway, that that sellers and Beloit stuff. Um, but uh, so, oh, hang on a second. So we, we, we had customers come in, and we got Campbell here. Say hi, Campbell. Hi. Yep, so uh, we're in the Wiggy store. Uh, so uh, we're doing the fundamental eval, and this guy puts the first rounds in. He can't open the bolt, all this stuff. And, you know, I'm looking at the, the, the pack of ammo there, and they're all different heights. And, I'm, and I said to Mark, like, when we're walking away, I said, that thing's going to blow up in about 10 rounds. Took about five, broke the bolt, wrecked the extractor, uh, you know, and, and then he had to end up using the APO rifle, which worked in his favor, um, because he wasn't going to do anything with that, uh, that hand cannon. And, and, you know, it's not a case of it. What we find is if you have a rifle, you can learn on that's not wrecking everything for you, wrecking your sight picture, you know, really pushing your wrecking limits. Wrecking my steel. Yeah. It, it, then when you go to that other rifle, like the Chris thing, like in the afternoon with Chris with his 270, we put him back on that on the last day in the afternoon. So he's got two hours in the afternoon with it. Then he's a one-shot hit with the thing. You know, it's still not perfect with that bipod collapsing and the whole thing. And so going back to Mark building these Tikas and up for when we were doing the RPRs, but like we had said, the only negative to the RPR is we replace the stock. We're replacing the handguard. 
you know, guys want to replace the barrels to a certain point. So when we're all said and done, your $2,400 RPR right out of the gate, the Teak is 1800 and that works. And now you got the APO at 1950 and we've, we've had to use the APO for a student for every class and it's worked out better than we could imagine. We get them, they're, they're, there's no learning curve. There's nothing. They're just on the gun. It's We adjust it for them, moving around a little bit, which it's toolless. We can move it around. Then the, it's accurate, factory ammo. That's why I like factory ammo for this kind of stuff. You don't want The way it goes down is guy comes in and he signs up for my course. Uh, he's looking at a big banner and he's heard about it, all his friends talking about it. And he comes in and he goes, well, I want to come. Um, how about Granddad's 30 out 6? No. How about uh, Ruger American 27? No. You know, well, how about I f- give you $5,000 and you build me something from the ground up? Okay, then. Yeah. And, and you know, with that $5,000, which sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people, okay, you can do a lot of things with $5,000. You can build a rifle only at $5,000. Now, what do you do for a great bipod? What are you going to do for a scope? Right. It's going to need a $3,000 scope. Uh, you're going to get none of the accoutrements. Suppressed, maybe, but that's going to cost you another 15 in the mm-hmm. long run. Okay, so what these guys did was brought me five grand. I, I put it all together with the Tika package, and the SHV fit the price point. Yep. They still got a spur mount. Right. They came with spur mounts. SHV held by a spur mount because I now I know the rings are not going to fail. They're not tally. Yep. Okay, and they all had uh, elite iron bipods. And that bipod is a lifesaver on the line. And everybody, once they kind of, they'll come off, there's guys that initially they're going to choke at this, the, the cost of an elite iron bipod. A, a lot of guys would stand up and go, this bipod saved my ass. Bipods matter. I'm, we're now getting into the point where we're doing these different demos with them and showing them just the limitation. You can get away with a lot because we're prone, okay? But consistency to take out elements of the equation where the Harris's are out of square <laughs> or the legs don't match up because they didn't get the uh, notched version. You know, you got to come a notch up because there's a spring in there. And then nobody has a pod lock. We got to put a pod lock on them so they're too loose. And the recoil hits their shoulder, goes back towards the muzzle, hits the junction of the bipod, and the rifle rolls over because their Harris is too loose. Harris is your lowest common denominator. It's, I need something that's better than nothing or a sling. This will work. But I'll tell you what, for and, and guys will come on and they're arguing on Sniper's Hide. They're coming on and they're telling me, bullshit, I won my PRS match with a Harris. Yeah, I've won matches with Harris too, but we're all using a Harris. Here's the trick, dude. Go to a friggin' FTR match with your Harris. And then come back and tell me how you won. How you won. won. And then I'll have Mark's tactical rifle and Mark will go to an FTR match with an elite iron. Or or the Thunderbeast. Or the Thunderbeast. We had had a prototype. I I brought Mark up a non forty five prototype um Thunderbeast. Well they there was a gen in there and they didn't put the forty five degree angle in the Thunderbeast. The notch. Right. So I brought that one up here. And because Mark's a huge Thunderbeast dealer guy, uh, knows the Thunderbeast people well. And pretty much he's, if you come in, he'll sell you any suppressor you want. Wiggies is like the suppressor headquarters in Alaska. And he'll sell you anything. But if you ask him, he's selling you a Thunderbeast. And he don't really want to talk to you unless you want to talk about Thunderbeast. But we do see other... Uh, With pre- precision yeah, rifles. Yeah, we, we see, yeah, pre- yeah, we're talking precision. Yeah. 
Well, we see other ones that work very good, but we're eliminating variables of your equation. You know, so like he's talking about, we know the SHV is going to work. He's putting it in a spur mount. Okay, he's on that Teak Attack A1 because that was what, you know, when he was spinning this up, that was in a price point, that 1800 where he didn't have to change the stock out. And extremely reliable and consistent. Right. And so then with that money, if you go the Tika, the SHV, now you got a little bit of money for a Thunder Beast too or, and the Elite Iron Bipod. So these guys had a complete package. They had a suppressor. They had a Elite Iron Bipod. They had a Teak Attack A1. And the SHV and a spur. Styling. And that's what, I mean, what'd you say? We had eight out of 13 elite iron bipods on the line uh, in one class alone. The first or second class, I can't remember. There were 13 students and there were eight elite iron bipods. I sent Dale and Kathy a, a photo down there. Yeah, and to, uh, we generally Montana. have the most prevalent bipod we use up here is the elite iron. You know, so that, that should tell you something that when... People come off the street and ask Mark to spec them a rifle. This is what it looks like. This is the quality of equipment we're looking at as a base level, you know, system to be precision rifle tactical competition crossover. Okay, we get it. You can get away with a lot of things. Not everybody's out there trying to shoot the way I shoot, Mark shoots, this guy shoots, Campbell shoots. Right, Campbell took a class, so he shot he it with a cracker. He, he brought a cracker. He brought the first cracker right. in Alaska. The first cracker in Alaska is sitting right over there, yeah. Campbell, and in lead iron, right, in in all that stuff. Yeah. It makes a difference because you know what, the student doesn't cant the rifle. If you go, um, Jim was here taking pictures. If you look at the first guy that used my APO rifle, he was a lefty. He was a heavy head that kept rolling himself over. So trying to keep him from canting with something like the, the Atlas. Now, I had the Atlas Cal so I can lock it up better. To keep a guy with a heavy head who's trying to roll over on you, you need a bipod that's going to lock up to the nth degree, which the Cal does, the Thunder Beast does, and the Elite Iron does. The Harris with a pod lock will... You know, but it's still got rubber feet. It's still and, got all these other. Challenged. It's still off it's square. Still got springs and, and pins and shit falling off of it. Stamped it's metal. Just, There's no precision in it. Yeah. You know, and that's what we're looking. We, you know, here's the thing, man. You're like talking precision rifle. You got a precision rifle system, and I want an eighty-nine dollar bipod. You got a precision rifle system with a thousand-dollar plus scope, and you got thirty-nine dollar rings from Three Bear. You know, it's in. Talk about the. Uh, you know, stacking up errors with the S&B ammo. So you, you got the, the primary arms, which maybe by itself isn't so bad as the scope. Well, then you add on this, you know, $12 a box, 6.5 Creedmoor S&B ammo with a round nose almost on it. it and it was their blunt tip. Yeah, yeah, it was the tactical. I'm like, what? And, you know, he was lucky to shoot a two-inch group with that stuff. I gave him a box of Hornaday. I know he fired 200 rounds at this course, which we... Tell people 160 max. And I know he fired 200 rounds because, because it was, it's he had so problems. hard to get him on everywhere. It Wait, was hard to get him on at six, for God's sake. I ended up, the, I was trying to do this uh, elimination thing, and I ended up having to pull his muzzle brake off his RPR. I think he, you know, must be like a Friday RPR. Process, told, process of elimination. Yeah, thing, I yeah. said, listen, man, something was wrong. We didn't know it was wrong. And at first, I got on the gun, and the scope wasn't responding, and there were some things. Well, he had these Warner or worn tool rings that 
were didn't have a half inch nut on it. They were finger tight and they, they came finger loose. Finger tight nuts. Finger tight nuts, and they came loose. And so, so we're thinking the scope's not working, but then the rings were loose. So without even that, I pulled it off. I put my night force on in a GDI mount, and it's still not working. The gun's still messed up. And so it's like, well, we don't know. And I'm looking at this SMB ammo su- suspect, but at the same time, you know, I threw some Hornaday in, and the Hornaday was half the size, you know, as a group. But it still wasn't responding right. And we would get it to work, and it wouldn't work. So process of elimination, you know, I'm we not We ran gonna... a lineup. Yeah. There were six different components in the lineup. Which guy did it? Basically, it's which guy did it, and we were, we were going from guy to guy. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't know if it's that guy or not. But basically, we found we did take improve his shooting by taking his brake off. Yeah, we pulled the muzzle brake. something wrong break. with that brake. It was out of tune, out of... Uh, there was something wrong with that brake. And it cleaned up his group, so it brought this S&B ammo from a three-inch group to about a one-inch, one-and-a-half-inch group. Um, you know, but it was then... I said, okay, well, we found that problem. Let me put your scope back on. So... Real quick, I threw the scope on and did a quick rough zero. I back a zero in from 300 yards and all that. And so I go to the 100-yard paper, and I shoot the first round. I see where it is. I measure it over. I dial down, and I hit the shoot and see. Not perfect to where I wanted to, but I hit the shoot and see. So I'm like, okay, it responds. you know. So we give it to him. He does the class. Sure enough, we come back to 100 yards, and it didn't hold it its 100-yard zero. But part of it, it it's... It's not that we're necessarily bagging on these one things. We're just trying to help you from making the same mistake. It's, as Mark says in the class, it's a combination of errors. It's the cheapest ammo you can get with a bargain optic. with the Held by a bargain, bargain set of rings. rings. You know, the RPR, like I said, we've always had outstanding luck. This is the first time I've ever had to touch an RPR and pull that brake off on it. And, um, you know, but I don't know because we had, you know, really bad ammo, bad rings, you know, questionable scope. And and so that's what we're trying to do is not bag on these people. We're just trying to say, listen, guys, it's precision rifle. You're spending a lot of money and you're trying to, you know, you get a guy with an app. He immediately wants to hit a one inch dot first time out with his app. Right. You know, they're playing with it all day in their car. They can't, you know, can't get away from looking at it, tooling with it, playing with their app. And then when they get on the range, they're going to complain because it doesn't hit a one-inch dot, you know, and it's like the app's fault, you know, come on. And and so you're putting all these things together thinking you're going to be sub-MOA accurate, and it just doesn't work. And then the the, the disappointment, the... And that's a big problem, too. Once it's a the guy's, trip. Once his confidence is broken in his equipment... He's not learning anymore. He, he's listening, but he's not really learning because he's there with substandard equipment. And he knows it. <clears throat> it's going to be a long day. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, and that's that's kind of the thing that why we talk about such high-end stuff, why we're carrying such high-end stuff. Why did I spec the APO the way I did? And why did I say okay to that system at 1950? And you know, it's it's there. Now, there's been other rifles that are good. Uh, Steve has a bad rock. That rifle, I think Steve's configuration, because he had the bigger MDT chassis, a little bit more than the sub-2000. But that barreled action on a bad rock 
is an excellent product for $2,000. But, you know, you don't want to put it in like the Savage Stealth stock that we saw. If you take that $2,000 like barreled action of the um, of the Bad Rock and put it in the Stealth stock that we saw with the Savage, everything falls apart. It's not going to work. Right. So here, we, here I'm taking a cleaned up, looked at, air gauged Remington 700 barreled action. Okay, that somebody's putting an eyeball on. Then I'm replacing the trigger and putting it all the money into the stock. Okay, all that 1950 is the stock. And it helps. It works because I know what the barreled action is going to do. It's five eighths or better for the average guy with factory ammo. Okay, well, the stock is there to support the shooter. And that's why these guys are shooting half minute in, in so-and-so because they're able to progress and learn to the system without fighting it, without the squirrely gun, without trying to take a precision rifle class with a Magpul bipod. I mean, a Magpul bipod is like to get you there. It's field expedient. It's like I don't really need a bipod that much, but when I need something, this will do. You know, but would you go to an FTR match and shoot it with a Magpul bipod. No, you're probably not gonna. That doesn't mean there isn't a situation for that bipod. You just have to know what that situation is. And we look at Harris the same way. And, you know, I I look at... I I, I never really gave the Elite Irons much consideration. Although, though, I, I get the concept. I understand the physics behind it. But at $600, I felt it was really hard to justify to a lot of people in the lower 48 for what we do. But it then was you, very similar to the way I thought about the AI. Yes. The, well, until I had my hands on an AI and until you had your hands on an elite iron, yeah. then boom, the light comes on and you realize now that you've been missing Well, because now I look at it in the yeah. context of a new guy and a student and I'm taking so many variables out of the equation and now Mark, man, Mark's like married to that AI and he digs it. It's just hammering. I said to him, I said, hey, let's yank the barrel and I'll do that. and We'll swap barrel um, and, and, and do this thing. And you were like, no, you dude. You're touching dialed. my rifle now. Because <laughs> it's, it's dialed. You saw it's dialed in. I handed, uh, handed, one, handed the rifle. Just called the AI. I handed the rifle to Frank. He was uh, on another student's rifle trying to hit a little squirrely target at, at 950. And sort of dancing around, but it was a rifle. You could tell it was, it was a rifle. defilade shot, and the guy didn't have dope. So yeah, all you could see was the head, the, the top of the head, and I was going to drop so it in over the burn. I said, "Here, Frank, try this. It's dialed up. It was eight point one. Yeah, here, Frank, try this, and ding, first round hit. Yeah, yeah. So all the, in the mirage and everything, just peeking up over, you can see about one inch of the head up over the, you know, under the berm there or over the berm, and I showed the the guy. I said, "Oh, shoot that!" And the guy goes, "I can't." I said, "Well, you could do a defilade shot." But he didn't have dope, and he was actually trying to establish his dope. So it was a bit, of, a bit of a, 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 you know, yes, no, yes, no. Yeah. And Mark come by, and he's like, "Dude, mine's ready to go. Here you go." And I, my first round, I hit the defilade shot. That's the difference in this stuff, and why we recommend it. And that also speaks to mine and your uh, eye relief being the same, sight picture being the same, parallax uh, ability to manage parallax being the same. Because I can hand you my rifle and you can hit center shot. Well, you said that yeah. we were do, screwing around and there was clay pigeons on the 1,015-yard berm. And, and you only had like a few rounds of your hand loads left. And you're like, don't be wasting my hand loads on a freaking clay pigeon. You ain't going to hit it. And I'm like, dude, I said, all I got, I had to change the elevation. 
because I knew what his thousand was, so I bumped it up two, but then I had to bump it back down one. So I, sh I went up two, shot the first shot, went just over, but I had the wind called and it was centered up. I came down one click, second shot, hit the clay pigeon, and center punched it with the students on glass and shit. And I'm like, what are you telling me I can't hit no clay pigeon with this gun? You know, so it's, that's why we do it. That's why we're, and at the end of the day, trying to save you a buck. Because I don't want you to do make a mistake three times trying to trial and error in a vacuum. You know, and the guy said to us, he said, well, the guy at the gun shop said the S&B was good. I said, yeah, it had a good markup and he probably made more money on that box of ammo than he does on a federal box of ammo. Yep. You know, and that's the difference, man. You know, if Mike was here, they may not want to admit it, but... Guys, look at what is the bottom line. How much do I make if I sell it to you, and how much effort am I going to put into it? If I'm only making $2 a box, I'm not going to put a lot of effort into it, and you know, Hornaday and Federal sell themselves. But if I'm making $5 a box, well, that's going to be the one I talk about. Yep. And, and, and to me, that's what I think is happening with some of this and some guys that, that you kind of rely on on that retail establishments, and they're looking at their bottom line. Cool, man. What else we got? I'm just looking at your list, too. Um, Make sure we don't... Back in and data. We got oh. in and out of seven, eight, nine, a 1,000 so fast, we sort of stood there like, I look at Frank. Frank looks like, what kind of drill you want to do? What do you want to do? Because we were in and out of here so quick. Campbell will attest to... The, when Campbell... Come over here, Campbell, real quick, so you can be on the mic. Quick. Tell them how, like, with the with the we 900... We struggled to get on the 900. The 900-yard target being 13 uh, feet in the air... And you shot it. it. It's tough to see because there's no ground underneath it. So do you remember shooting 900 and kind of like the line struggling a bit? A little bit just because you had that dip down there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then if, if you hit low, too. you can't see a splash at all. If you if you hit far if you shoot back. over it, you can see the splash under the target from from your line of sight. So basically, it's a little bit deceiving. You know, you want to bring a guy up into it, but he's actually shooting over it. But but anyway, with that. 45% thing I, I would just pulled out of the air the other day. It smoked. The last class we went, I went to the 10th student out of 15 at 900 before we got a miss. Yeah. And he went off the left edge of the target. And it was a windage target, miss, right? A windage miss. I gave him, uh, and, and each of them had two and, hits on the target right off the bat. And Mark's talking first round hits. Okay? Yeah, first and second round Yeah. Hits. You know, we're talking first round <laughs> hits for 10 students out of 15 going down this line on a target we would spend probably 45 minutes on that one target alone struggling. And then, you know, okay, we'll get back and back you into it. Because we used to go, you know, seven, eight, nine, a thousand. And then that nine was so hard, we'd go seven, eight, a thousand back to nine. And there had even been a couple students where it'd be like, dude, we're not even going to do the nine with you. Um, just do the thousand and do the eight. Forget the nine because you're just not in the space for it. And now, with this, doing this little bit of math, we're able to say wh how we did it this time is I ran everybody down the line at a thousand. I got I got about five students ahead, and then Mark came back and said, "Okay, what's your eight? What's your thousand? Subtract the two, multiply that by 0.45, add that to your 800 yard dope. Ding, ding on the line. Ding, ding. on the line." And, Write it down. you know, that's what it is because we have such a variety of rifles, such a variety of calibers, such a variety of scopes, you know. So it, it's not always the same to just say, 
you, you know, it, it's different. You got a 270 hunting rifle. You got a 30 odd six. You got um the 30 378. You what was not um, for long. We didn't. What was Gary? Gary was a seven millimeter straight. I had a seven WSM shooting 180 game kings or something. Uh, you know, so a seven wisdom with soft point out of a surgeon. Right, out of a surgeon with soft point bullets, and and uh, you know. It's such a mix up here of calibers because it's such a hunting culture. And these guys, I mean, they'll tell you with, you know, the 300 wind mags and the different bullets. And it's not PRS target match shooters. It's not just 6.5 Creed, 6 millimeter with the best, you know, ELDMs or all ELDXs or soft points, round noses. Because you guys walk out into the woods to go. Uh, we had the biggest moose on the planet come by. I think we mentioned it. Yeah, we did. It come right across the thing. It was as big as a pickup truck, you know. But if you run into that guy, that's one thing. But how about the bear that's on his tail, you know? You get and and so guys are worried about running into that stuff. So we see a a bullet more geared to terminal, where you know in a PRS thing, it's just touch. It's just touch. And it, it doesn't have to do anything when it hits the target. It just has to make a mark on the plate, set off a flasher, and be as accurate as possible. But these guys want to make sure when they're when they're out there that, you know, Mr. Grizzly, uh, freaking Smokey the Bear, isn't going to eat their ass and they can get a thing. Because that's a real thing, you know? And usually you don't go out that far out, too, with the, when you're hunting. Too. Right. <coughs> yeah, well, most of you guys. But, I mean, up north a little bit, you guys can get some distance on caribou, right? Um, don't they shoot caribou like seven, eight hundred? Can up, uh, up on can, the but I, they're always moving. I don't suggest it because if you gut shoot a caribou, you're never gonna find him, and it's just wrong. Yeah, no, yeah, it's just wrong. But I mean, yeah, the, the trees are so thick here that the range is really, really short, and so um, it, it's they, they they're looking at that more so. But they but they want cannons, man. Because well, up up on the north slope, it's like the surface of the moon. Yeah, you can see forever to the horizon. Yeah, it's crazy. So. No, man, it's it's all good stuff. Yeah, we're about wrapping it up. We're all done. We got the 45-minute mark. Thanks for Campbell copping in and saying hi. Thanks for everybody up here at the Alaskan Precision Rifle. Uh, Glenn had his Norbert experience where Norbert tipped over his bag just like Marks and stuff. So, hey, man, you know, I don't know. Uh, new Ancient Aliens this week starts, so don't bother me on Friday. Don't text me. Don't call me. I'm watching TV, man. So when I get home, I got a week off. I'll be back up here in June, first week of June, actually. Uh, turning right around. How about that steak last night? Oh, yeah. We went to the Crow's Nest and the Captain Cook, which is the Captain Cook is uh, our five-star hotel, five-star restaurant, whatnot. And it was it was out of this world. Yeah, fantastic. Tasha. We didn't have Tasha. We had Tasha. And she was beautiful. Yeah, she yeah. was really hot. And um, the, the, But the food was fantastic up there. Uh, we, we dessert everything. We had the uh, full-blown big old steaks. Mark and I had the steaks. I think uh, Tina had the halibut. Then uh, we had the desserts. We had some espresso. We just had a whole night of it, and, and it was really good. All right, guys, I'm out. Thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon.